You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on the NegotiateX podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Belinda Chu, author, speaker, and executive coach. If you haven't already checked out part A of the show, be sure to do that first. Let's jump into the conversation with Belinda. So when it comes to compassionate candor, I feel like this is one that so many of us just don't get, uh, get it correct. And so we either feel like we need to sugarcoat everything or that we need to be jerks and bullies. Where do you see compassionate candor lacking today? And what can we do to overcome this feeling that it's in either or choice of being insincerely nice or blunt directness? I appreciate sort of the, uh, this is one of the toughest pieces that I know I don't always get either. Um, and, and that's why we're, it's always this sort of, this, it's, it's a journey for us. And I do think we tend to, as human beings, most of us don't like conflict. Um, even those of us say, I like conflict, most of us don't. You know, from a neurobiological perspective, when we're in conflict, right? That you know, so my dog has that. Right? We our brains kind of go into very quickly, like I'm in danger, and when I'm in danger, I'm gonna come right back at you, or I'm just gonna right shut down and and stop in the conversation. And so there are spaces where we tend to either say, "Well, take it and leave it. That's it." Like you said, being a, a bully or a, a bluntness. Again, keep in mind that most people aren't intending. I would like to argue that most people have good intentions. They really genuinely do. I mean, the impact is always that smooth, right? So we tend to sort of be on that side, or as you said, sort of the avoided, um, I say avoided kindness, right? There's insincere niceness and there's avoidant kindness, which is, you know, where everything's nice and everything's great, but we sort of sweep everything under the rug. It's what, you know... Um, but Ricky Boyatis calls the stinky fish. He, he has this great book called um, Hostage at the Table. Have you heard of the book? Sometimes about the stinky fish under the table, and you know, he's like, you know, so oftentimes in cheap, like everyone smells of fish. Like, <laughs> <laughs> kind of pretend it's not there. And like, what is it like if we just bring the fish up on the table and it's going to be messy, we're going to get our hands dirty, there's going to yeah. be, you know, some disagreement. But at the end, we can clean the fish and have a nice meal to do the fish, right? So, you know, all of those, those pieces of how do you bring that element of, you know, it's, it's really, is this a lost opportunity if I don't bring this up? Is this a lost opportunity if I don't bring this up? Is this a lost opportunity for me to learn something? Is this a lost opportunity for me to learn something? And it's not about blaming or needing or shaming. And I think that's a really important piece because it's also, and this is where compassion comes in too, is how do I separate intention from impact? Because intention is not the same as impact. Now, does that mean I ignore the impact? No. Yeah. I ignore the impact. But I also come with greater, perhaps, equanimity. And that's, I haven't been able to answer the question of how do you show humanity for those? No, is it, how do you show compassion for those who don't see your humanity? I'm still, I'll be honest, I'm still working through that. I'm not, I, I'm, right. it's a big question. But it is one of those is, you know, I always think about, I was just telling someone today, you know, the three questions I often ask myself is, because I've gotten myself in many trouble uh, before by not asking these questions, which is, you know, does something need to be said? Does something need to be said right now? Does something need to be said right now by me? 
The answer is all three. I'll probably say something, but it gives me space and that power. And that's where centeredness again comes in is if I'm giving myself that pause, instead of just reacting, my response hopefully will serve a greater intention than me just being right. And he'd actually tuck at Marshall Goldsmith who taught it tuck at his last, I was there for his last live lecture. And so he said, Linda, he said, Mr. Linda, stop trying to win. It's hard, right? I'm just like, wow, he's right, not right. And he's like, stop trying to win. It's not a, it's not a competition. It's not a game, right? And I, I take that, what he said to heart, because it's shifting from that needing to be right to saying, what's the, my greatest intention for me, for you, for us, what's my greatest intention for me, for you, than us, because then it's a little, my martial arts teacher says, He's like, it's like wielding an iron sword wrapped in velvet. And I use this analogy a lot and I love it. And I'm like, oh, I do that. So it's not, again, about rolling over me. Like, oh, you can, you know, I'm not ignoring the impact, but I'm doing it in a way that, because I know I mess up. And then I mess up. I would love for you to correct me, but in a kinder, gentler way, like, don't just whack me inside with this iron sword. Right. Before you do that. It's this shift. And what I hear as, you, as you're talking about it, so, so much is, goes back to initial points that you were making around you know, awareness and awareness plus mindfulness plus. It's also this shift in thinking that conflict is always a negative thing, that actually conflict can be a healthy thing. And I think that's probably difficult for a lot of people to grasp and even embrace. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it, it triggers so much, right, of our, it's how we grow up. It's how, right, when we observe different models of, of how people handle conflict, right, that has a lot of it. Um, how we are recipients of when things haven't gone well, right? There's certain moments that I can say there's certain moments of conflict where I'm more comfortable speaking up and others where I'm like, and I can tell in my body when that happens. And it's because it's nothing to do actually with the situation, but it's probably, it reminds me of things that just were so uncomfortable. And so that's why this practice of not just again, self-awareness plus in so ways, but it's putting it into action. So right. this, this is, you know, there's a saying that, you know, the retreat in the woods is one thing, but the real, the real retreat space is in the city, in the middle of the city, in the middle of a boardroom. That's where the work is, right? Because that's where it's more complicated. And so even recognizing where and the practice of sort of centeredness, compassion is part of it is the embodiment of, of leadership because we're so... And oftentimes leaders, they're brilliant, right? Leaders are because they're good at what they do. But then that means they also overanalyze things. We ruminate things. We can analyze. Yeah. We can just buy anything with our words and our, our rationale or quote, quote rationality, which is an almost rational. But the more we're able to tap into sort of our the different data points, and all of this is data points, and we have to be careful because the body um, is that really important book. The body keeps score. It's not an easy book to read, but the body also puts a lot of trauma. But the more we're aware of how even physiologically I'm responding to something, the quicker I am or the more intentional and choiceful I can be about how I respond. Right. So just, you know, when I, when I'm thinking confident, I'm like, I know for me, it's like, look, it starts here. And when I, the minute I notice that I've got to be like, blending out a ring because the next thing you do might not be really useful in this next week. And I know <laughs> where it shows up for me. Well, I know that, Curiosity is the final C of your compassion strategy. So I know that this is something Aaron and I definitely love and that we're convinced that most of us just aren't as curious as we need to be, especially when we're addressing today's issues, whether they're social, political, economic, business, et cetera. 
So kind of two questions here. How do you think about creativity and helping someone become more creative? And then number two, how do activities such as improv help create a more creative mindset? Great questions. And, and as you can see, sort of how they all connect, right? This builds back into curiosity and really comes back into what we talked about. That yeah. intentionality, that purposeful play, the ability to embrace conflict. Because if you think about even conflict, and to your point earlier about, you know, when you think about children, when they have a conflict, of course, sometimes it can be very, but you look at this innocent children's play, right? There's conflict and they figure it out, right? For them, it's like, okay, now we figured out who's whatever. And I want to play the blah, 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 blah. But they figure it out because they're not seeing conflict as a bad thing. It's just their way of working things out. And so the more leaders can embrace conflict and actually set up systems for, for that kind of healthy discussion. Um, I worked with this one group and then I'll answer your question. So I'm kind of going sideways a little bit. Yeah. I worked with this one agent's called Work in Progress. They're awesome. And one of the reasons why that was really insightful, because a lot of times, especially in, in there, they're the, the big ad agencies that did like Domino's, like some pretty incredible campaigns. And oftentimes after a project, there's postmortems, right? They don't call it postmortems. They call it retrospections. And I love that. It sounds so simple, right? But right. for them, postmortem is like after you die, and then we're going to talk about what went wrong and that can draw up conflict. But for them, it's about having that space to simply kind of go, hey, what can we learn, right? And so can that feel like it could be, content could come up? It, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's looking at things that didn't work well or disagreements in a really healthy way, right? And that leads to the sense of curiosity is how can I be open to what I don't know, right? And most of the time, right, there's that dunning what it lowering the fact the more the more we know, the less confident we are, or the vice versa, the less we know, the more confident we are. If you ask me, I, I really don't know anything. Um, this is what I, was, I, I knew that was false. <laughs> or nothing. And I'm okay with that, right? Because it's a sense of, and it goes back to that child mind. It's how do I stay curious? What don't I know? What don't I know? And and part of that helps us to, and that's why connection is so important, because we talk about, especially DIA inclusion so much, right? But all of us, including me, I'm constantly being like, haven't heard that term before. I need to learn this. Like, tell me more, right? So, all of these things. It's how do we actually fully get stay curious about the other? I mean, it's Mr. Rogers, I think, who who are the one, you know, and she actually gave a commencement speech. I saw his commencement speech at Dartmouth. But you know, I think it's Mr. Rogers who said, you know, it's impossible to hate someone once you are restored. I love that. Right. Because it is kind of hard to, I mean, you might disagree with so many of what they do and that, but it's really hard to hate um, once you know restored. And so how do we stay curious to someone's story? Because their story is different than yours, right? And, and by allowing that, and as leaders, for us to stay curious, it's not only about the people who work with us, but staying curious about what we don't know. And I think really some of the strongest leaders, don't know, um, who's, who's just in it, and she, she just popped up to mind, um, uh, I won't sort of share exactly who it is, but she maintains this, curiosity of everything. And that's who I hear. She's been recognized by her company as one of the top, whatever, you know, they have these awards. And it's because she's always got this, what don't I know? And so it allows her to always find the different spaces where she can really build and inform what she needs to do in her department. And that in a way is improv, right? It's taking what is clear and drawing from what don't I know? And I'm not ignoring, I say there's a pink elephant here. There's a pink elephant here right now in the room with us. That's the fourth you know, guest on this uh, podcast. There's a fourth elephant. Now we have to work with the fourth element. And the elephant, now we have four, four, four elephants too, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> 
taking that piece and and building on and creating something that hasn't been thought about before. And then, so curiosity and creativity, I think to your point, I think oftentimes we have this misunderstanding about what creativity means as well. Say a little bit more about that. Could you please? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, how many of us go, I'm not creative. I hear that from my students a lot, right? That, that I'm just not a creative person. So what you're asking me to do here is something I'm not wired to do. I can't do it, right? Yeah. I right. It's like I'm an analytical person. I'm a da-da-da person. I'm not because we oftentimes think of creativity as which it is, but it, you know, art, drawing, music, all of those things, which I am zero talented in music. And <laughs> I'd say the air guitar. But you know, so I it's funny. I I I worked with this one organization called Creative Creatures, for example. And Han Christensen who founded this and they've been working on this for now probably 15, 20 years, and it's the psychometric assessment actually about creativity. And what I love about this model, this is one particular model, but I do find it quite useful, is to shift the mindset that creativity is about one type of creativity. And what I love is that her question is always, and we'll use, and I just did a, a session on, on, on these creative styles, creative IDs, a couple of weeks ago. It's not about how creative are you, but it's how are you creative? And many of us have different, we have different styles of creativity. Some of us are really great at generating ideas, which tends to be the default way of looking at creativity, right? You're an idea generator or you're not creative at all. But some of the most creative people are the ones who like, you know, I think about, you know, folks who are able to take something and just make it amazing. That's not my skill set. I'm like, can you just put this, like, I came with the idea, can someone just make this? And then someone just, and it becomes this, like, like Legos, right? It becomes this magical piece where mine looks like, you know, work. So, you know, I think for us to encourage leaders to also start exploring, one, how creative they, like, how, in what ways are they created? And in what ways does creativity show up with their team members? Because it's going to be different and it doesn't look the same. And when we talk about inclusion, that really, it's generally really thinking about how are the different people on my team created in their own ways? And am I, am I leveraging their creativity in the best way possible? Right? Like you don't want me to be the one who's putting the finishing touches on anything. It's not going to be pretty. Like that really everybody's <laughs> time. Right? But at the you know, so it's, are we matching and aligning people's whys, right? Their authenticity, you know, their, their core values. Are we aligning with their whys? Are we really leveraging the strengths that they have and using those strengths to actually develop the areas where they could grow? That's a wonderful piece in terms of leading teams. And it's a direction I wasn't sure we'd go in. I was going to ask a question. Maybe I'll still go here about how I manage creativity for myself. I like how you made that very inclusive of how I bring in the creativity of others. There's a quote I was shown I don't know, some time ago from D. Hawk, who was founder and former CEO of Sabisa, that said the problem is never how to get new innovation, innovative thoughts into your mind, but how to get the old ones out. Every mind is, is a building with archaic furniture. Clean out a corner of your mind and creativity will instantly fill it. Curious how that does or doesn't resonate with you. And are there practices? I mean, are there things that I could do or should be doing to kind of allow space for creativity. Great core and great. I guess first I was to say, let's remove the and cause, right? So there's no that you know what, what, what works, but it's interesting that quote, huh? It's one that I 
can I say I sort of agree with <laughs> um, where in, in, in the sense that I do think uh, what I do, what resonates with me with that quote is the importance of unlearning, mm. right? Part of learning is unlearning. And I know I'm sure you have as well, but oftentimes some of the leaders that I work with, which I would say we do more challenging sometimes, is that when there's certain ways we've been doing things for a very long time, it's really hard to unlearn. I know I right. do, right? I've always done it this way, right? So we sort of have this, you know, because it's comfortable. We know it. And obviously, in, in many ways, it's probably worked for us in many ways. Now, is that the best approach or the most effective approach moving forward in this ever-changing world? Maybe, maybe not. So unlearning can be challenging. Um, I do find sort of, for example, um, one thing I love about sort of coaching tech students, for example, is they've got this, you know, kind of very open sort of that, that child's mind in some ways and not that they're children, but that, that openness uh, sometimes uh, is a little bit more evident in immersion, just for obvious reasons, right? Obvious reasons. It's not a judgment call. It's just, it's kind of obvious why. Um, but so I think that resonates with me in terms of sometimes it's unlearning things. The other part of that quote that resonates with me is the need to kind of, it's what Michelle Navarro, who's a um, deal of, of Beyond EI, she says, it, I love this, she goes, empty your head trash, right? Mm -hmm. Because we all have this head trash in our in our brains. And, you know, I'm looking at now <laughs> the little recycling bin on my computer right there, right? Throw <laughs> everything away. But, but then I sometimes get that message of like, you're running out of memory. I'm like, but I throw everything away. But I also kept like, you know, I don't know, 50K. Like <laughs> 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 the trash that I haven't deleted. So I think it's out there, but it's still there. Right. Yeah. So sometimes the, and that's where, again, centeredness comes in, that authentic sort of um, authenticity comes in to say, what is still there in the recesses of my mind that is no longer of service? Is this a dialogue or conversation or recurring loop that keeps playing over? Yeah. And maybe I thought I put it aside 10 years later, poof, there it comes again. Right. Is that no longer serving? That said, I do think it's also important not to just completely necessarily wipe everything out just because it was an idea that was done before. Because sometimes, yeah. you know, it's Professor Perry at Tech, he, he says, well, uh, it's again, uh, I, I, I'm a really good at misquoting everybody, but he <laughs> 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 so, put something about how like the best organizations, they never experiment at their core. So back to sort of like, you know, what, like if you know your core, you know, what he says is that you know, excellent organizations always experiment at the edges because if you know who you are, now you can experiment at the edges. And so there is something to be said that you're not putting the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. If that's a useful thing. Does that make sense? So, yeah, thanks. No, I think that was a wonderful response. And you mentioned in there, you know, these different audiences you work with, you, you work with a wide range from C-suite to undergrads. And I know you've done some work with, with veterans as students at Dartmouth too. So as two veterans, we say, thank you. For, for the work you're doing there too. As you try to practice these things with students, what do you see as differences in their response and receptiveness, potentially generational, potentially of experience, right? That's how we've always done. I'm just curious, like better response from some more difficult, more resistance from others. I wouldn't say more or less. I would just say different um, in, in some ways, um, different in some ways because of just experience, right? You know, experience and, and, and all of that, right? So whether it's, you know, working with our, our, our veteran students or someone who's been, you know, I've worked with a few retirees, which, you know, I haven't had that experience yet uh, of, of retiring, right? Maybe uh, we're age, never, uh, but, you know, kind of, but, but I think sort of that human element is pretty consistent, right? And I think most people who at least 
find the the calling, not if calling is the right word, but to say coaching or leadership, there's something that calls to them about there's got to be a different or not a different way, but there's there's got to be another way to show up where I can be more of who I am or be more effective. At, right. So there's this sort of genuine desire usually from from whoever it is. I would say from sort of young emerging leaders, for example, and I think this is something that I have noticed in the last 15 years or so, there's been sort of a shift of more urgency in how to lead with greater equanimity, compassion, empathy, the words empathy, emotional intelligence never came up before, right? It was like, how do I be a more effective, productive leader? And it's not that those words weren't, it wasn't that those leaders didn't care about that. It's the, the we're now more, you know, we're more familiar with the words, but also I think, especially since the world has been the way it has been, there's just a greater urgency that I think most of us, again, want to be in a society where justice and equity and love and all of those things are, you know, sort of, you know, really, you know, dominate the, 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 the conversation rather than sometimes what was on the news that's not to ignore what's there, but I think there's a greater sense that this is not about us anymore, right? And I think a lot of the leaders that I have the fortune of working with also see that, right? So, you know, a lot of the leaders that I see, you know, whether they've been, you know, in this world of, you know, building giant buildings all across, you know, countries for decades are really being more open to like, okay, well, how does this multi-million dollar building impact the short term, right, in terms of the communities that it impacts, how does, like, are, are the very materials I'm using going to have, what kind of effect does that have on our carbon footprint? Like, all of those things are, it's just, like, I, I do find it, and that's where the hope is, is that I think more and more leaders and emerging leaders are recognizing that they are in a position of power to influence where we go. You know, you mentioned earlier, Belinda, that the things we've been discussing today are often called soft skills. Anyone who have ever tried to practice this knows that it's really difficult and uh, it's not uncommon to get them wrong when dealing with the real people in the real world. How do you encourage a leader who is trying to put these concepts into practice, but maybe struggling with it or thinks that they may be failing with it? I think it's a great question. One is let's reframe the word soft skill. Um, like that's definitely just my connection, but reframing that but I guess uh, you know, your question makes me think of two things one is building the business case right I think for a while leaders who have done this and believe in this and so we have some leaders who have been pioneers in doing this work they've had a long struggle because sometimes they are the only voice right to say this is important the good news hopefully is that there's more and more evidence around why there's a business case for, for this type of work and approach to things because to be quite honest, my point of view is we don't have any other choice. Like we can decide as humans right now to go one way or the other way. I kind of want to go one way, <laughs> the way in which we all sort of uh, buy. That's what I would like to see, even if I'm not going to be here to see it. That's okay, right? That's, that's again, that's part of the human condition. So I think one is seek out support from others. There's other leaders out there who are providing and offering, doing the work, putting into practice. Right. So if you look at, you know, for example, Search Inside Yourself has for a long time worked with SAP and they were one of the pioneers to bring mindfulness and emotion intelligence. SAP, right? You kind of think, boy, if they're, you know, they, I mean, they said this is important and we've seen the impact of it. There's a group mindful on Wall Street, right? You think investment bankers and mindfulness. What? 
there's a group of meaning, high impact individuals who understand that what does it actually mean to be to to do this with compassion so that it's not, yes, do they help their clients make money? Oh yeah, right. And it's with sort of that minute. So there's, I think one side of it is that it being okay and asking for the, you know, in Jesus case, if that helps to bring this type of work into their, their work, but also think about that can help inform who's at the table, who's not at the table. How do we, and it's because it's not, I think one thing to consider is this work isn't something we add on, right? Because a lot of times that whole like mindfulness movement, right? That we call mindfulness. It's like, oh, I have a yoga class and, and I love yoga, by the way. So I'm not dogging yoga, big kind of yoga. But instead of just sort of saying, oh, it's a add on, it's, and it's just this, it's, a, it's very similar to equity, it's, you know, diverse and equity. It's not an add on, it's about who we are, right? And how we do things. So, how do we actually bring this? And that's why I call it a strategy because the strategy is how we do things so that we're actually impacting the entire ecosystem. That said, the other piece that you mentioned is that self part, that own work, right? For leaders, it's we kind of have to, right? It's being the role model, walking the walk. We kind of have to role model this. And yeah, there's times where do I always have a consistency? <laughs> right? Are there times I fly the hand? Oh, yeah. Right. So, it's again, sort of that notion of sort of self compassion is. How do I acknowledge when, when I've messed up um, and not that using an excuse, but as sort of that opportunity, okay, you know, we learn. I remember when I started, so I've been yoga since I was a little chick because my dad always said done yoga, but he never told me it was yoga. I just covered him. But when I started meditating, I remember and learning, I was like, I can do this because when, right? I'm like, I'm going to do 20 minutes. And I slept for 19 of those 20 minutes. So, <laughs> <damn> me, <laughs> it's like, this is great rep. But it was right. So I'm like, okay, baby steps. So some of that is just a little bit of humility be like, let me start at one minute and go the other way around. So I had to learn. It was a great nap, but of no love and big from Yeah. Been there. This has been a fascinating, wonderful conversation. I knew it would be. Thank you so much for that. As we get ready to wrap up, I've got a two-part question for you. First of all, where like what's next for you? What's your next challenge uh, that you're aiming towards? And what challenge would you lay out there for our listeners from the things we've talked about today or anything we, we didn't get to? Yeah. Oh boy. That's a two great questions, man. This is going to be like a good, uh, <laughs> so as I mentioned, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, but I do, I think the next challenge for me, I've been, so over the pandemic, I like everybody else, um, kind of like, what else am I curious about? And I've always been curious about, I've always loved the outdoors. I've always just, you know, that's just been in my space, but, and I've always been fascinated by, I don't know if you've promoted sort of forest bathing in, in Japan, there's a lot of science around being in the forest. Well, again, the evidence is piling up more and more, but there's a lot of research around, not just about stress reduction, but actually about how to be um, more innovative, more creative, memory retention, all of that sort of being outside in nature. And so I actually got certified to do forest therapy over, over the pandemic. And my challenge right now is to how do I integrate more of, because it, right now it's, it makes sense in my head and I got to figure out how to articulate that out into the world, but it's understanding how do we weave in this important piece of, and it's not a new concept. I mean, there's been world, you know, worldviews and many different communities have for a very long time. That's the, the that's the worldview by which things are are done is in sync with with, with what uh, David Adam calls a more than human world. And so, part of my challenge is how do I get leaders in sort of this 
other constructive world in this cult modern age that we've created to embrace and re-establish these reciprocal relationships with the modern human world. So there's a piece of stuff I've been working on and understanding how do we learn from mycelium networking mushrooms into organization design structures. Like it's kind of nerdy and it makes sense. It, it makes sense, but I've got to figure out how to articulate it. But that's how generally I work. It's like, it's not, you know, I've, I sent a couple copies to friends and they're like, what are you talking about? You got to <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And so, uh, so that part, I try to figure out how to weave that piece into, and it connects into this purposeful play and improv and this importance of global awareness of this. And, and, and this, the last project that I was just on just reinvited that joy I have of, you know, when you bring people together and share space, I mean, that's, you know, talk about being a force for good. I'm like, just, and I didn't do it. I was just sort of being able to observe all these amazing individuals to help them, you know, as, as the Dalai Lama and, and our tradition, you know, teacher had said, right. Being a force for good. So that's my challenge. How that show, I don't know. I'll, 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 that's going to be for the next, maybe off, off the record podcast. Or you can help me <laughs> but it's, but it's that staying curious about what, what, where that, where that takes, takes this work. But and I guess that maybe leads to the next challenge for our listeners is how do you bring elements of this compassion strategy, not just into your work, but into your everyday, right? And and I'm sure many of us who are listening to this, if you are either one, I bored you to death or two, you, you already know this and you're doing it, but how can you sort of challenge yourself to really Think about your individual practice and how that ripple affects to everyone around you. And what do you need from, from others? What do you need from me? What do you need from, from your colleagues? Like, how do we create this so that it's a momentous shift rather than certain disparate? That's why, like, for example, Michael Wall Street, I find so intriguing. It's not just a couple individuals and different banks that are doing it. They figured out a way of let's release ego. It's not about my bank is doing this better than yours. It's let's, we're all in this together because we're in the same motion. We're not all on the same boat. Some of us are still floating on that door that Rose wouldn't let Jack off of. But we need to be mindful of all those different, you know, spaces where people are showing up and to make sure that we do have a way to navigate these, these waters we're in. Beautifully, beautifully said. And I, and I love that as a call to action. So I'm going to pass it over to Nolan because I think that's a, that was a great note to end on. Thank you all for listening to the Negotiates podcast. Uh, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.